Welcome, everyone. This is a Council of Institutional Investors educational podcast. I'm Jeff Mahoney, General Counsel of CII. I'm here today with C. Gregory Rogers, the founder of Eritos the Needs, LLC. Mr. Rogers is the author of a recent paper entitled Carbon Quotient, How to Create Accountability for Net Zero Across the Investment Value Chain. Welcome, Mr. Rogers. Thanks for spending time with us today. Pleasure to be here, Jeff. So, Mr. Rogers, let, let me start uh, with Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen recently outlined a climate agenda calling for net zero emissions by 2035. So, what exactly does that mean? And what are some of the principal economic barriers and constraints to achieving that goal? Yeah, great question. Uh, well, let's start with the definition of net zero. Net zero is a catchy term for eliminating man's continuing contribution to global warming. It relates to the amount of carbon humans add to and remove from the atmosphere each year. The central premise of climate change is that global temperatures are correlated with the concentration of carbon in the atmosphere. As carbon concentrations increase, the planet warms. Net zero means that we stop increasing the, car the concentration of carbon in the air by eliminating all carbon emissions or taking out as much as we add. So the net increases zero, hence net zero. Secretary Yellen's proposal is aimed at achieving net zero for electricity generation by 2035. The Paris Agreement aspires to reach net zero across the entire global economy by 2050. And the Biden administration has recommitted the United States to achieving that goal. The question about, your question about principal economic barriers and constraints, it's another great question that I don't think is asked nearly often enough. I believe the principal barrier is that to reach net zero by 2050, it will be necessary to prematurely retire much of the world's vast stock of carbon intensive assets and either retrofit or replace them with low or zero emission alternatives. This will require a tremendous amount of capital investment that is not figured into existing business models. Let me give you some examples of carbon intensive assets. They could include everything from oil and gas reserves to cement and steel plants to jet airplanes and gasoline-powered cars, to commercial office buildings. What this means is existing and especially new carbon-intensive assets are at high risk of becoming impaired or permanently stranded by the energy transition. So let's talk about the constraint. The principal constraint is that businesses must make this transformation while maintaining an acceptable level of profitability. It's just wishful thinking to expect that most investors value climate mitigation over profits. They don't. Investment returns are unconditional. Voluntary net zero is icing on the cake if you can get it. So, Mr. Rogers, your paper discusses the concept of carbon quotient. Now, what is carbon quotient and how is it different from other metrics? 
that are widely used to track company performance in addressing climate risk? I'll explain and differentiate and differentiate carbon quotient, or I'm going to call it CQ for short, in terms of what it is, why we need it, and how it works. First, what is CQ? CQ is a set of open source financial equations and ratios every accountant and financial analyst can immediately grasp. CQ doesn't change the audited financials. Rather, it builds on them. It adjusts the income statement and the balance sheet to reflect a particular what-if scenario. What if this company or this portfolio had to be carbon neutral today as a matter of law? Would it be profitable? Would it be solvent? Think of CQ like earnings per share or profit margin. It's algorithmic, something a computer can process. This means there are no subjective expert assumptions or black box methodologies. It's completely transparent. This differentiates CQ from most proprietary carbon metrics. Next, why is CQ important? CQ is important because it measures asset impairment risk arising from the carbon pricing that governments will eventually have to impose to mitigate the climate crisis. Climate-related financial risk and opportunity both arise from the need to retire and replace carbon-intensive assets with low or zero carbon alternatives on an expedited schedule. By treating everyone the same, Assuming net zero applies to everyone today, by law, CQ allows investors to compare different investments on an apples-to-apples -apples basis in a way that reflects true financial risk. In the sense of comparative measurement, if you are familiar with oil and gas reserve accounting, CQ serves a purpose much like the SEC's PV10 standardized measure of oil and gas, also known as SMOG. Most important, CQ enables investors to easily distinguish between climate winners and losers and thereby assess and price carbon risk. Comparative differentiation among investments is critical. We may not know exactly how much risk there is in absolute terms, but using a standard yardstick, we can tell which companies are riskier than their peers. To reach net zero, we're going to need a great deal of innovation. We don't know where this innovation will come from, but when we see it, we need to feed it with capital and allow the laggards to wither on the vine. CQ can help us do this. Finally, how does CQ work? Apologies in advance. I'm going to speak like an accountant for a few minutes. The terms I'll use are all defined in the paper. CQ starts by calculating the future emissions embedded in emission-producing long-lived physical assets over their remaining useful lives. Asset lives for fossil fuel reserves, power plants, factories, buildings, and equipment can extend beyond 2035 or even 2050. Fortunately, the average remaining life of a firm's property, plant, and equipment can be calculated mathematically from its audited financial statements. 
CQ then prices these unrealized future emissions at the estimated cost to remove them from the atmosphere at global scale, probably in the range of $100 to $150 per ton. CQ treats this unrealized carbon expense as a contra asset to property, plant, and equipment on the balance sheet, just like accumulated depreciation. On the flip side, CQ treats avoided costs to offset past emissions as a contingent liability. Think of it like a court award in a lawsuit claiming damages for unjust enrichment for a company having profited from harming society. Finally, CQ enables comparison of different assets, companies, or investment portfolios in two ways. First, by comparing net zero adjusted results of operations and financial conditions, for, for example, carbon adjusted shareholders equity or earnings per share. And second, by comparing the ratio of unrealized carbon expense to the net book value of property, plant and equipment on the balance sheet. This is what I call the carbon quotient ratio. As a ratio, the carbon quotient functions at the asset company portfolio. It can even operate at the national level. It's not dependent on new SEC regulations, changes in accounting standards, or new corporate disclosures. It uses only audited financial data and emissions data, which may be modeled if it's not self-reported. By comparison, the most widely used carbon metric today is called carbon intensity, and it's calculated as annual emissions per $1 million in revenue. CQ differs from carbon intensity in two important ways. First, by accounting for future unrealized emissions embedded in existing long-lived assets, CQ is forward-looking. CQ captures the future that has already happened. And second, by correlating unrealized emissions with the assets that produce them, which assets are at risk of becoming impaired or stranded, CQ serves as a true measure of financial risk. Keep in mind, revenues don't produce emissions, assets do. Carbon risk equals asset impairment risk. Most significantly, CQ can be calculated and published by independent analysts and reproduced by investors for validation. This enables accountability across the entire investment value chain from asset owners to corporate managers. Everyone can hold everyone else accountable to the same objective standard of performance. Final question, Mr. Rogers, on April 9th, the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission's Division of Examinations issued a risk alert on ESG investing. What was your reaction to the SEC's risk alert and what are some of the key takeaways for institutional investors? I wasn't surprised by the alert, which cited a lack of standardized ESG definitions unsubstantiated and misleading claims, and a lack of internal controls. In fact, the former head of sustainable investing at BlackRock, Tariq Fancy, put it more bluntly, saying in a recent op-ed that Wall Street is greenwashing the financial world and that sustainable investing is merely a PR distraction 
from the problem of climate change. I think some key takeaways for instance, institutional investors are first, financial institution greenwashing is not just misleading, it's illegal. Second, it's hampering society's progress toward net zero. Tariq Fancy is at least partly right when he says sustainable investing is a distraction from the existential problem of climate change. Third, asset owners should be aware of the strong incentive to sell fake products when the genuine article is unavailable. What do I mean by that? Demand for green investment products and ESG data is soaring, growing at 20% or more per year. Asset managers and ESG data vendors will fill that demand even if credible data and methodologies are still lacking. The easy and obvious solution is to obfuscate through complexity, to tell retail and institutional investors that ESG and climate are too complicated for you to figure out, let us handle it for you. But if the experts truly don't know what they're doing, it's all just greenwash and paper tigers. To tackle the climate crisis, it is imperative that financial markets learn to more accurately price climate risk and opportunity. We cannot afford to allow the high priests of the temple to, as they say, fake it until they make it. A final thought, talk is cheap, net zero pledges are good, but as Ronald Reagan might've said, asset owners should trust but verify. It's actions, not intentions that count. Net zero creates a common destination and deadline for everyone. That means we know where we are going and when we need to get there. Given the strong incentives for greenwash, investors that are serious about combating climate change and prospering from the energy transition need a net zero GPS a global positioning system to tell them whether their investments and their investment managers are on track or off course. I would offer that such a GPS is possible and that CQ can provide the coordinates for it. If you have any questions or would like a copy of the paper, please send me a message on LinkedIn. Thank you. That concludes our podcast episode. On behalf of the Council of Institutional Investors, I want to thank our special guest, C. Gregory Rogers, founder of Eratosthenes LLC. If you have any questions or comments regarding this podcast, please feel free to contact me at Jeff, J-E-F-F, at C-I-I.org. Until next time, I'm Jeff Mahoney. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Voice of Corporate Governance, brought to you by the Council of Institutional Investors. The Voice of Corporate Governance is a free, non-sponsored podcast that highlights critical developments in corporate governance and other important issues affecting institutional investors. The views expressed by those interviewed on the podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of CII or its members. For more information on CII and its policies on corporate governance, please visit our website at www.cii.org.